Welcome to This Osteopathic Life. This is Dr. Amelia Beakey. I'm honored to share with you the philosophy that has underscored my personal and professional life and explore how osteopathy truly is for the health of all things. I see these principles in action every day in my varied roles as physician, parent, athlete, writer, musician, coach, and entrepreneur, and hope they will light the way for the path to your best health. Please note that while I am a physician, this podcast is intended to share general information and encourage discussion about medicine, health, and related subjects. The content provided in this podcast and in any linked materials is not intended and should not be construed as medical advice. Thank you for joining me for episode 44 of season three of This Osteopathic Life. We are on day 17 of the daily podcast adventure for the month of November 2021. We are past the halfway point. We can say we're in the messy middle, but we've actually put some construct to it, given it some form, embraced it. We also aren't surprised by that anymore. If there can be some challenges and difficulties and loss of time or pacing, we can recognize that that's a common piece of this part of the puzzle. To not be surprised by it, to not be frustrated or disappointed by it, to embrace it and to incorporate it and to recognize that we can move through, grow and strengthen from this experience. As we saw a couple episodes ago, as we transitioned into this portion of our monthly programming, there was a need for a change of pace, time, duration. Honoring that, tuning into that is a key piece. And in these next nine or 10 episodes, as we're allowing things to unfold as feels best, we are exploring some of the concepts introduced in Positive Intelligence by Shirzad Shamin. I shared more about that in episode 43. You can tune in there. You can also investigate on the website more information. And we're taking a journey through what are designated as saboteurs. And I'm offering to you my experience with them and also perhaps the osteopathic perspective on saboteurs. And what an interesting word, all right? As soon as we say that, what comes up for us? Bad, undermining, problematic. But even within, perhaps especially within those saboteurs, there are absolutely gifts. There are spaces and places for connection. There are strengths to be honored and noticed. And there are also contrasting aspects that we might neglect. Or there are contrasting aspects that we might automatically assume to be good, but perhaps not nurture them, not give them attention. If we think about the squeaky wheel getting the grease, right? the tantrums drawing the attention, what feedback are we giving to ourselves? And how can we perhaps honor that, which is building connection, building strength, honoring our worthiness with ourselves and our relationships in the world and with the people around us? And so today we're going to explore control and care. And I want you to just toggle back and forth between those two and see what comes up for you. Does control sound safe and powerful? Does it sound confining and anxiety provoking? What does control feel like to you? We won't even say mean. What's it feel like to you? Getting about being in control. We've talked about control in lots of different ways. And we're of course going to explore that here today. And then take a moment and just think about care. 
And notice often what comes up is this warmth, this empathy, this perhaps maternal nurturing nature. But does care sometimes feel exhausting? I mean, how much care is there to give? Who am I caring for? Am I receiving care in return? So notice there are different ways any of these words and ways of being can resonate with us. So let's go back and let's look at control. And let's look at some of the definitions associated with control and see what comes through there. So if control means to direct the behavior of a person or animal, to cause a person or animal to do what you want. Now, if we think about that, and if we have been tuned into one another for any length of time in the concepts of coaching, in the concepts of how I approach clinical practice and osteopathic medicine, is it even possible right, to control the behavior of another? And you could say, well, perhaps right, with enough force. But thinking about that and thinking about that ownership we have of our own thoughts leading to generating our feelings and our feelings leading to our action, there is still that direct autonomy we have over ourselves and no one else can control that. Now, of course, we can look at extreme situations where power is absolutely being abused and misused right? and there is force and there is coercion. Right? So we can see where control can be utilized, we can say is inappropriately perhaps unacceptably. And so just noticing that and beginning to say, right, how is control showing up in my life? How am I implementing or utilizing or what expectations do I have for control? Am I expecting to direct the behavior of another person? Now direct can make that seem a bit friendlier. And I think about in the practice of medicine, let's say, right, it is a hierarchy. And in many ways, that's a good thing. It's meant to give support and offer experience and mentorship and guidance. Certainly, it can be misused and abused at times. It can be applied in a way that keeps others small, seeks to limit and force people to act in a certain way and not necessarily functionally or nurturing and thinking about that, and you might think of the word professionalism. That might come up in that space of directing the behavior, expecting directing professionalism. Even looking at that, that concept, that practice has also been misused and abused because certain interpretations of professionalism can very much be ostracizing and marginalizing and biased. Right? Professionalism can be levied as a form of microaggression. So noticing where control is being implemented in the way of having power over, and that's actually offered as the next definition. And we've talked about power, right? power with and for and to, right? but power over, noticing that and just feeling it. I feel this shadow come over, right? It's like we're standing on a sunny day when we're talking about the possibility of power and we think of power over it's like a big thundercloud comes over. And right now, I'm just going to offer up, I'm having a visual of Gargamel. Anybody who watched the Smurfs growing up? Right, so you have all the pleasant music and the collaboration, right? Smurfs, if nothing else, were a collective. They were working together. 
And when I think about power over and control in that way, it feels like this doom and gloom and fear comes into the picture and a sense of not having our own power. This person is going to come and control us. Seeing how that comes into play. Now thinking about control, if we reframe it here, so to direct the actions or function of something, to cause something to act or function in a certain way. And that may be alluding to an inanimate object, something that's not human, not animal, doesn't maybe have some autonomy or perhaps feelings. But let's allow something to absolutely be a thing with feelings and let it refer to ourselves. So what if control is directing the action or functioning of ourselves to cause ourselves to act or function in a certain way? Now, again, that could very much still be misused or abused, especially if we are internalizing expectations of the world around us that aren't appropriate, that are not welcoming us as our whole selves and encouraging belonging, but are rather expecting us to contort and conform and to fit in to a certain way of being. But there's also the opportunity to implement control in the way of taking that ownership, absolutely stepping fully into ourselves, being fully ourselves in any situation, stepping in and belonging, showing up and recognizing that we do have control over our response in any situation, even those most egregious situations. And I've shared with you the impact of reading The Choice and the Gift by Edith Eager, Dr. Edith Eager. And looking there and saying, even in these situations when so many variables are absolutely beyond my direct control, I have control of my response. And that might be moment to moment, breath to breath, recognizing where that internal autonomy remains, persists, and holding on to that. Let's talk about control in that external world and where, again, the motivation of being controlling, we're going to look at it that way, being a controller in particular situations can be beneficial and helpful and where it can cause us some challenge or even distress, perhaps internally and also perhaps in those relationships with the world and with the people around us. So when we're controlling, there can be this sense that there is a certain way to do things. It is the way we are going to do things and we are going to do it the best. And now in that There can be a sense of getting things done, paying close attention, being willing to do the work, right? Showing up, being committed in that space. And there can also then be a benefit there. You can count on this person to show up. If you think about perhaps group projects in high school, that comes to mind, right? The controller might be the person who will pick up the pieces. And that can be super helpful, right? If the end goal is getting the project done, whatever the cost. Now the challenge in there can be if the controller doesn't allow others to participate, micromanages, if you will, has a certain vision, which is fantastic, but either doesn't communicate the vision in a way that others can understand, doesn't offer space for others to join in and be part of the vision, doesn't welcome other opinions or honor, recognize the strengths of the others and invite them to participate in the way that works best for them. Controlling is taking all of that and removing 
some of that autonomy from others. Now, remembering, right, the nuance there is they retain that autonomy, but they may very well relinquish it or find it not worth pursuing because it feels like a battle that they aren't going to win. And the path of ease, we talk about that in osteopathic medicine as well, can often be to just say, okay, right, you do it all yourself. And ultimately, then the controller can end up by themselves. It can be ostracizing in multi-directions to take it all on and not welcome others in. So noticing that opportunity for restraint and opportunity to invite others in and to welcome that part that does see the mission, the vision, and have the drive to get things done and see if there's a dial, if we can kind of moderate that temperature and find the space where that can be fuel and motivation, but it doesn't burn out the crew because it burns at a low enough rate to allow for a simmer, allow for that soup to come together, or allow for that sauce to reduce by welcoming all the parts to contribute. So looking at that piece, and as I scroll down, of course, right, we invite the gifts of the universe in. Control can mean power or authority to guide or to manage. And just seeing that difference, right? Not directing the person or the animal to do what you want. How does it seem and sound so much different to have the power or authority to guide or manage? So own that leadership skill of control, of having the vision and knowing you have the energy and the capacity even. You can do it all, but should you? For your own sake, for the sake of others, for the sake of the team, for the sake of the sustainability of the project, because you might do it once all on your own. What if you're going to do it again or replicate it on a larger scale? That's where the team is welcomed in. And so thinking about that, power or authority to guide or manage. And I'd offer in there too, to encourage in the process of guiding or managing. And I'm saying this also to myself. I'm at a space where welcoming in different members of a team is coming up and there are spaces and places where it's very easy for me to hand something off, to trust a team. And there are certain parts and oftentimes not even necessarily the higher level parts, but simply certain details where I think it has to be done in a certain way and I don't have the time to pause and teach somebody to do this. It's going to slow me down. That's often some dialogue that we have. But what we've witnessed is we have to take that moment because the long-term investment of that is the continuity. It is the sustainability. And in the slowing it down, and we've also seen, right, that slowing down can absolutely happen in ways we never expected. Travel, schools, hospitals, service lines, all stopped. And we said, there's no way, right? This has to keep going. There's no room for any acute shift here. We've seen that change happen. And so honoring that, recognizing it, and being willing to push that pause button long enough, right, to exert control over the pausing and then relinquish some of that control, perhaps extend it, offer back, reflect the capacity for control in that other person, remind them of their autonomy and their capacity for choice and for response. So just seeing there the different ways we can engage with control. And why do I offer care 
as an alternative in this space? And what are some of the different ways that we can engage with this as an experience? So the opening definitions of care likely resonate with the ways in which you, I know for me, come up, right? Care and caring and nurturing and loving, an effort made to do something correctly, safely, or without causing damage. So it's along that line, right? So doing something thoughtfully, perhaps, but even just reading that isn't interesting. For me, there's some sense of anxiety and scarcity involved. I have to get this right. I have to be careful, which again, careful can be full of care or right, it can have an element of fear behind it. Tiptoeing, right? being afraid you're going to step on something or trip the wire. And so just seeing that, are you embracing care in a wholehearted way? I'm doing this with care in my heart for the greatest good, or am I doing this carefully with a lot of anxiety and nervousness about getting this just right, as if there's one right way to do this. And that if I get it wrong, if I don't get it the ideal way, there's no going back. Am I tiptoeing? Am I walking on eggshells here? Or am I able to walk confidently, full of care, but not tentatively and carefully there? So interesting. Care are things that are done to keep someone healthy. We think about healthcare, right? We talk about that all the time. And again, here an opportunity to see the beauty of that. Preventive medicine, lifestyle medicine, thoughtful ways that we engage. And thoughtfully, I think, brings some element of wholesomeness, of richness, of positivity to the engagement with care. But things that are done to keep someone healthy, we can even see there. There can be this sense of, we have to do this or else. And that can come up. We're facing that a lot with the pandemic. And wherever you stand on vaccines, right? and we could have whole episodes around that, what I invite you to consider is that each person making their decision with the vaccine for COVID is doing so in an effort to keep themselves and those they love healthy from whatever information you might want to call it, bias, right? disinformation, however you want to classify it. Every person is operating from the space of keeping themselves healthy. You might argue with that and say, absolutely, they're not, because this is very clear. And we see both sides feel that the information is very clear. And their ultimate mission, vision, purpose is to care for themselves and for one another. And we can also take a moment to say and to ask ourselves, are we doing this out of love, out of connection, or are we doing it out of fear or out of protest or out of following suit, out of social pressure in either direction and see if we can come to that space where we're doing it out of care, out of love, out of honoring the health, not out of chasing the health or fearing that the health is going to escape us in some way. And how might that inform your decision? And how might it help you to make peace with the decisions that are being made? There can be this sense of have-tos around this concept. 
And what we're noticing is we're not making a whole lot of progress with force, with the efforts to control. And perhaps there's an opportunity to engage differently with care that may result in different outcomes. And can we bring it to that full of care, heartfelt, love-oriented, truly grounded in health space? And how might that look versus that careful, tiptoey, anxious, nervous space? Care, things that are done to keep something in good condition. Immediately, I think about polishing a table. I don't know why that comes to mind. That comes up. So we're seeing something, and it can be totally functional, but we're contributing, we're providing nurturing so that it will last longer. Now, interesting here, I honestly didn't expect this, but we talked about it early on. I didn't look at these definitions before opening this episode, which might surprise you or might not. (laughs) We've been together for a while here. I really do trust what comes through. And as I move through, scroll down these definitions. This is from the Merriam-Webster website. So thank you very much for this information and for giving us the space to explore words in such beautiful and investigative ways. Care, suffering of mind, grief. Do you often think of care that way? I don't know that I necessarily do, but what an invitation to shift that perspective. And again, see care which often has its connotation in the positive, in acceptable, in this beautiful way of being. And not that grief isn't beautiful in and of itself, but just noticing that we do have different relationships with grief in the world, in our particular society and culture, and just seeing that. So care can also be associated with grief, which is listed as suffering of mind. We talk a lot about suffering in coaching. Can we eliminate it? Can we eliminate it or lessen it for others? And looking at how suffering is being contributed to by our thoughts. And now especially around grief and around loss, particularly in this time of the pandemic, that can feel really accusatory and shaming. But what if what it offers is that there can be some reduction in suffering by the way in which we engage with something. And that's not just a think yourself better. That can be an option. It's not a just paint it over, right? With rose-colored glasses, with shimmery, shiny gold, sprinkle it with glitter. We know, right? Glitter, ugh, right? The complications, (laughs) the mess that can come. We're not asking ourselves to ignore what is or to jump ship because we're experiencing grief or experiencing suffering, but we're offering that there is space. And what I love to picture is the reduction of friction. And we'll chalk this up to my training in neuromusculoskeletal medicine. We think about right, when a joint is not lined up just right and there can be some grinding there. And early on and with just a little bit of malalignment, it doesn't seem so problematic. You might not even have any pain. You might have any swelling. But over time, each and every rep, right, there's continuing friction in wear and tear And that's where things can get irritated, inflamed, worn out, burned out, whatever language we want to use. And making space, reducing some of that friction, finding some improved alignment between our expectations. 
our reflection and response to a situation can provide some element of relief, even enough for just a moment to allow us to breathe and to be in a situation. And we may come back into those big feelings, but it gives us a sense of reprieve is available because in really tough situations, in the throes of grief, you can feel like it is going to go on forever. And that perspective, that reduction of the friction, that pause, that breath allows us to see, oh, this is not my forever. This is a moment in time. And absolutely, it can be heavy and hard and painful and overwhelming, daunting, and it's not going to go on forever. Just knowing that can be relieving. So looking at care as something that causes such a state, such as worry and concern, even anxiety, a painstaking or watchful attention. And here we can see where control again goes from being thoughtful and managerial and leadership oriented and willing and capable to right, limiting and stifling and micromanaging and disconnecting within the team. So too for care, right? There can be the thoughtfulness and the nurturing, and then it can sometimes become overwhelming, suffocating, stifling, right? Too much worry, right? Am I caring or am I worrying about something? And can we disentangle those two and recognize when one is weaving itself into the other? We can look at the responsibility for or attention to health, well-being, and safety. So we look at that as another option to be concerned about, to give care, to have a liking for, to have an inclination, to be concerned about. So absolutely, there are ways that care is beautiful and valuable and a source of connection to ourselves, to others, thinking about self-care, right? That comes up a lot. And is it selfish? Is it selfless? Is selfless a good thing? Because that means we've ignored that self even is there and in the picture. And so just noticing how we associate with these terms, with these ways of being, how certain elements of them, when they're implemented to a particular degree, are absolutely helpful and nurturing and of the health growing the health, honoring the health, building connection, creating contentment in our lives, leading us towards success or achievement, and then seeing where, when taken too far or in a different direction, can be, as we've heard, stifling, disconnecting, overwhelming. There can be a source of added stress and anxiety. They can lead to actually a loss of productivity, And you might say, well, not really, right? Because if I'm really caring and I'm really controlling, I'll get stuff done. But again, for how long and at what cost? And seeing that we all have elements of each of these. We all have preconceived notions of these words and these concepts. And we can see how there are underlying potential definitions, potential for misuse of these that we might not notice we might not acknowledge and we don't have to be suspect of everything happening around us, but we can be thoughtful. We can be aware. We can be tuned in 
to what it looks like to be fully engaged in something, what it looks like to be grasping for and holding on really tightly to something so that we do get it just right. And because there are certain external expectations on us, and when we can tune into that, we can choose what our response is. If we want to carry on in that way, or if we can return to that baseline, find that resonance of why we want to control something ultimately, so it goes well, so it's successful for the team, and we can say, oh, right, if I'm in this full of care for myself and for others and for the project and for the mission, for the greater good, for the health of all things, this is how it looks. And I trust myself to recalibrate to that baseline. I trust myself to receive feedback and to do check-ins with my team to ensure they feel seen and heard and cared for. And so I feel seen and heard and cared for in this space. And together, that is our ultimate contribution. We'll continue this journey. And if you'd like to dive deeper into these concepts, see how they apply to you and how you can apply them to your life, visit thisosteopathiclife.com, get on the newsletter list, and you'll be the first to know when our group coaching program opens up. This is Dr. Millie Beakey with This Osteopathic Life. Thank you for listening.